So I'm in cloud in a right turn, 200 feet, and I'm now descending. But I had to get out of the way of him. So we just we nearly hit each other, but we missed. And I come out of that descent, and I nearly hit somebody's clothesline in the back of their yard because we were that low. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. This is episode 55 of the Rotary Wing Show. Welcome back to the show where together we get to explore the helicopter industry, get to meet some of the people, and hopefully take away some of the tips or knowledge that is going to make us all better at this crazy thing called aviation. If this is your first introduction to the show, that's awesome. Just know that as you kick back and listen, or perhaps as you're driving on your way to work, that there is pilots, crewmen, and aviation buffs around the world listening in and hanging out with you. The Helicopter Foundation International, or HFI, has just announced their scholarship winners for 2017. The foundation gives out six $2,500 maintenance technician scholarships, four 5,000 scholarships to pilots working towards their commercial license, and the Michelle North Scholarship for Safety and the Bill Sanderson Aviation Maintenance Scholarships. I won't read out the full list of names, but you can check out the full press release at rotor.org. So a big congratulations to all the scholarship recipients. And great job on getting through the nomination process. Special mention to David Betts, though, from Cotton Tree, Queensland, here in Australia. He is about an hour up the road from where I am, and I think he is the only scholarship recipient from outside of the US. If you would like to have a crack at the 2018 scholarship round, then applications open on the 1st of September 2017. All the info about applying can be found at helicopterfoundation.org. As this episode goes to air, the HIA Heli Expo 2017 will be kicking off in Dallas, Texas, and running March 6th through to the 9th. Again, it looks like an amazing program. I think there are something like over 600 exhibitors at the expo. I know several listeners from the show are going to be there, so send your photos through on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Rotary Wing Show so I can follow along from the other side of the, of the Pacific. Past guests on the show, Sean Coyle, and Bob Fierce are running presentation sessions on the event education program. So say hi to those gents if you bump into them. Looking a little further out into the year, out to August, we have World Helicopter Day coming up again. I'll be ramping up the promotion for that again soon. And looking for companies that want to you know, join in with the continuous rolling open days around the world for the event. In 2017, the day falls on a Sunday, the 20th of August. So mark up your calendars and follow along at worldhelicopterday.com for updates. If you're operating or working in a helicopter company or organization and you know that you want to be part of the day, then start to get your event details coming through on the website so you can leverage the visibility of having your event listed up on the, the event's worldwide site. So again, that is Sunday, the 20th of August, 2017 for World Helicopter Day. Okay, with a bit of the news out of the way, let's get into the, the main interview for today. When I record these interviews for the show, they are you know, a lot of fun, and I really hope that you get a lot of value from all of them. You know, I certainly do. And I, you know, I learn things every time, and know there's just a huge amount out there still to learn about how we fly and operate helicopters across all the different sort of niche roles that they are used in. 
I've got to tell you though that today's episode and the next episode, which will be a continuation, was an absolute hoot to record. Matt Barker is an Australian pilot who's clocked up 30 years flying with the Australian Army. In that time, he has flown Kiowa, Blackhawk, Tiger, and the Australian version of the NH90. He is an instructor. He was part of the introduction of actually using MVGs for the, the first time in the Australian Army. He has had his aircraft hit by debris as two Blackhawks collided directly in front of him. He's worked from a blank piece of paper, developed the procedures for operating the Tiger and the Australian Defence Force. He now trains pilots on the newest helicopter in the Australian Army fleet, the MRH, or the multi-role helicopter, known overseas as the NH-90. And frankly, with the stories he has to tell, it is amazing that he is still here to talk about it at all. So ladies and gentlemen, it's my great joy to get some of Matt's stories out there for you to hear. Matt Barker, thanks for joining us on the Rotary Wing Show. We've been chatting a little bit already, uh, so it looks like we're going to have some fun. But uh, yeah, welcome onto the call. Thanks very much for having me. Terrific to be here. Awesome. All right. Now, we'll give people an idea of uh, all the things you've done as we go along. But I've been fed a, a few different stories here by Craig Bowman. So let's start off with the first one about um, and allegedly punching a, a nana uh, during a, a joy flight. So let's start off with uh, how that happened. Yeah, no, well, that was... Uh... <laughs> That was a while ago. So what happened was I'd finished uh, Blackhawk uh, flying up in Townsville. I uh, was heading down to the helicopter school uh, at uh, Rath Base Fairburn in Canberra. And on the way down there, uh, a guy by the name of Chris Townsend uh, from Townsend's Helicopters in um, Hoxton Park. I don't think they're there anymore. I think they've closed Hoxton Park. But uh, anyway, he rings me and says, I've chopped the top of my finger off. Can you come back to your old uh, flying school and help out with some teaching? So uh, I agreed to do it at short notice. Uh, I ended up doing my CASA check the following day, and within an hour I was out uh, teaching all these people I'd never met. Uh, and he had quite a lot of students on the book around, I think he would have had around 30 students on the book. So I was uh, flying um, every day. And uh, in that period, he'd uh, been put on that Channel 7 uh, a show called uh, Sydney Weekender, like what to do on a weekend. Oh yeah, yep. And uh, yeah, and he got a he got a like a five or ten minute grab on that for uh, take somebody up and give them a um, a tip a training introductory flight, and and he did really well. Like we must have had around seventy people call wanting to do one of these, you know, fifteen or twenty minute flights. So anyway, I ended up doing a lot of these uh, between training sorties, and on one of these days. Um, I've landed with a trainee and uh, just about to shut down and he comes out and said, oh, can you do a, a tiff uh, with a lady? And uh, and then all these people come around the side of his hangar and there must have been about, I don't know, about 20 people with this old lady. She would have been, you know, I think it was her 65th birthday. So anyway, I said, oh, yeah, I could do it. Uh, I don't really mind. So we, um, I'm in the left seat because I've just dropped the student off and she gets in the right. And just to simplify things, we kind of kept it that way was normally I'd put her in the left seat and take the dual controls out, but um, we were in a bit of a hurry because I was out of fuel, not out of fuel, but I had a limited time. So anyway, we put her on, everybody's waving, taking photographs. It turns out it's her birthday. Fantastic. So um, And she lives actually near Hoxton Park. So I take her over there and uh, get some photos of her house for her birthday. And then I'm a bit of an idiot because I go, right, I need to give you the, the tiff, like the trade introductory fight as if <laughs> yep. she's thinking of becoming a helicopter pilot, but of course she's not, she's 65. So we do, I get her to have a little fly and um, and then I do, uh, you know, a couple of uh, approaches and that. And then I do, of course, an order of rotations. The poor lady 
nearly has her first heart attack with me at the controls because she's never said anything like it. But then at the bottom of that, I say, right, I'm just going to give you this little low-flying area we've got. It's all put aside for um, these tips just to introduce you to it. So when I'm coming around the back of a paddock at quite low level, like only a few feet off the ground and coming around the corner onto base at Hoxton Park, and I suddenly roll uh, onto base trying to make it exciting for her. But obviously it was so exciting. So she grabs the uh, the T-bar on a R22 and she grabs it like a handhold and locks it. But I'm at only about five feet and at about 60 degrees angle of bank. Yeah. And I suddenly realise I can't move the controls. And in an instant, I, I, I tried to oppose her and I couldn't. She's literally frozen. And she's old, but she turns out she's quite strong, this old lady. And so I just punch her right in the face. With, so I let go of the cyclic with my right hand and just punch her right in the face. Just to, I had to. We were going to die in about you know one or two seconds. We're just about to hit the ground. So I just punch her right in the face. And then I grab the cyclic and recover because she's, well, she's going to let go because I'm just punching this lady in the face. And, uh, and then I'm going, oh, my God, we nearly died. And then she's now weeping and wailing. And I look at her and there's blood just pouring out of her nose. And I'm like, oh, my God, what have I done? And, uh, I, I'm now, and then I try and wipe it with my hand. Again, and that looks even worse. It's a, it's a Stephen King novel. And, uh, and I'm now coming around final, making all my radio calls. And I'm now slowing down to come back to the hangar. <laughs> it's just blood going everywhere. She's in tears, and I'm looking at her going, this is going very well. And, uh, and as I arrived at the hangar, there's all the family waving and taking photos. I'm like, oh, this is a disaster. So as we approach, they all slowly but surely stop taking photographs, and they're now just staring at their nana. And as I land right in front of the hangar uh, with the two pads are, these young guys in their 20s are trying to run out under the road, <laughs> under the road plates. So I keep putting my hand out the door, telling them, you know, to stop, they can't come under. And uh, I finally think, well, I think my career's over in the, uh, the TIFF world, <laughs> maybe, maybe my fly career. So I just, uh, I shut down and then I let them all come in. And they, there's literally 20 people scrambling for their nana and they're carrying her away. There's tears and there's blood. And um, I just kind of stood there at Chris Townsend because he goes, what happened? And I said, oh, she locked the controls up and uh, I had to punch her in the head. <laughs> he just goes, what? And I said, I'm really sorry. Uh, I'm not sure how this is going to go for everybody. But I said, we actually nearly died. So I said, look, it's a miracle we're here. Um, and I get she's got a bit of a bloody nose, but I mean, you know, she's alive and it's her birthday. So, you know, we should all rejoice. <laughs> you know, aircraft, aircraft's in one piece. Yeah, they all came over. The family came over and going, what's happened to our nana? And I said, well, um, your nana tried to kill us. And uh, that was how I started. And they're like, oh, my God, what, what did she do? And I spun the worry and told them how she'd locked the controls. And I'd, been, I'd had to resort to, you know, literally physically, you know, uh, hitting it to get her off the controls or we're going to die. So I said, look, it's a miracle your nana's alive and I'm really sorry. But, look, your nana nearly killed me and, and destroyed the helicopter in there. And then they all turned around and started yelling at their nana. <laughs> so, and then they dragged her and go, Nan, how could you do that? They, basically, they took her away. Uh, and we never heard from them again. And Chris Towns looked at me and said, I think we've gotten away with it. And I said, I think we have. And uh, anyway, that was the end of Nana. And uh, it's the only time I've ever hit a woman in my entire life. Uh, look, I feel, every time I think about it, I feel terrible. But because uh, I had a Nana, you know, who would hit you with Nana? So anyway, that's my Nana story. Did you bring your, uh, your tip flight up, uh, low height from that? Oh, yeah, <laughs> I did actually. And I said to him from now on, mate, if one turns up, I'm getting in the right seat. Uh, take the take the left controls out and uh, and and we you know to save two minutes you know nearly cost me uh, my life I suppose but uh, there you go. <laughs>
And I said, to this day, I still, I still feel terrible about it. Well, at least you had an army career to fall back on. Yeah, I know. But, and we still, she still paid. Well, I think they paid up front, which was very nice of it. But uh, I think we'd have given it to a free charge, of course. But uh, I, I did many, many tips. And, uh, yeah, she was my, uh, my most outlandish one. And I backed them off after that. I said, right, if they're not interested in flying, why don't we just fly around at, you know, 3,000 feet and Make show them the fly, sights yeah. of Western Sydney and we'll be done here. Oh, yeah, yeah. So anyway, there you go. That's my Nana story. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, so you, so you did your training there then. So obviously, so, and we spoke um, yesterday, or a couple of days ago briefly about this. So you started on R22s and then obviously went into an army career. But uh, can you talk about how you, you know, your, your first flight and how that came about? Yeah, so I, I'm one of those, uh, those people that was a nutter for flying all my life. But all my childhood, I wanted to fly Air Force Mirage because I sort of grew up with the, the Mirages and the F-111s, and that's all I wanted to do. And then in uh, when I was in year 10, this TV show came on on the ABC. Uh, it was about um, – it was a big country. It used to be an ABC series on TV when we were all kids. And one of those seasons in 82, they did a, a, se- a whole season on Kiwis. So they kind of took all the cameras and everything to New Zealand and filmed – you know, the farming community of New Zealand. And one of those shows was about a chopper pilot, uh, and he was the guy flying Hughes 500s out of uh, Mount Hutt in New Zealand. And I think it had been filmed in 1980, but it was actually on the, sh- on the television in 82. And I remember watching this TV show with my dad. I was in year 10, and I was watching it going, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And I said to him, you can scrap the Mirage, Dad. I'm going, I'm going helicopters. And and that was the day I realised uh, I wanted to fly. In fact, all I wanted to do was fly Hughes 500s in New Zealand chasing deer watching this guy. Uh, and it turns out I've never been to New Zealand and I've never flown a Hughes 500, which is quite funny because the only reason I'm a helicopter pilot is uh, so that I could have done that. Um, so after that, he got me a Bell 47, uh, a TIFF, I guess, not a TIFF, but a joy flight out of Sydney Harbour. And they used to fly off Pier, I think it was Pier 3, or Pier 4 down in Sydney, right on the harbour there, next to the harbour bridge, was the heliport. And uh, Helimuster, I think it was at the time, had the, uh, the contract. And so you could go and get a, 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 um, a Bell 47 joy flight out of there. So my dad, uh, my mum and I got in this Bell 47. Oh, sorry, my dad and I, sorry, in this bloke got in the Bell 47, and off we went. And, mate, it was magic. And I said, that's it, I'm done. And uh, so I basically... Um, after school, I worked and uh, started flying with Chris Townsend in, um, at the end of 85. Uh, I was 18 at the time and uh, started on my, um, my flying career. And uh, about a year and a bit later, I finished my commercial license in February 87. And um, about two weeks later, I was sitting at Townsend's and he gave me a job uh, just doing light charter work and that around Sydney. Uh, aerial photography and that, and because um, I only had 105 hours, so it was very hard to get a job. And uh, I opened the newspaper, and there's a big ad saying um, the Australian Army needs pilots, and it was the first ever ad that the Army put out for SSO pilots, and it was like a full-page ad in the Australian. And I remember looking at it, going, "Far out! I could do that." It just said physics, maths, and English year 12, and apply. So I thought I could do that. And Chris Townsend had been an ex. Um, Royal Australian Navy seeking pilot and instructor. So I had a chat to him about it and said, I should apply for this. And uh, I applied and got in. I got in in October 87. So that was the very first SSO pilot course. Um, I guess we should explain what that is for people who don't know that. So generally, Oh, no worries. So, yes. So there would be two, or well, I guess before that point, you would have had to go in as an Army officer 
basically be a, you know, do your full army officer training and become a pilot. And now what we have is a, in Australia is a kind of a two-track system. You can go in and be an army officer, then a pilot, or there's a SSO, so special service officer scheme where you can go in basically as a pilot and get the, uh, what we call the, the knife, fork and spoon course. And uh, yeah, I, I did it the same way. So what was your experience? So you would have been, you know, basically walking off the street and I'm guessing there would have been some cultural uh, conflict. Well, it was a total shock. And in fact, for the army, it was a shock because they'd they got the SSO pilot scheme going in 87 because in 86, I think it was, the ADF, the Australian Defence Force, made a decision at government level to transfer all of the battlefield helicopters from the Air Force to the Army. And at that point, the Air Force were running um, three Huey squadrons, uh, a Chinook squadron, and then the helicopter school down in Canberra. And it was quite a big setup in the RAF, and they'd flown in Vietnam, and uh, their helicopter force had been around quite a long time. And over in the Army, it was um, a single regiment, the 1st Aviation Regiment, and a school and they had Kiowa, Porter, and Nomad. And now suddenly they've been given all of the uh, Hueys. They've been given the new Blackhawks that were being purchased at the time. And the army was almost like a flying club. It was very small. Pretty much every pilot knew every other pilot. And suddenly they're getting all these helicopters from the Air Force. So a a plan was uh, set up to somehow recruit off-the-street pilots because they needed them rapidly. And they couldn't wait the 18, 18 months to do the uh, course at the Royal Military College where people do their career course or they go to ADFA, the Australian Defence Force Academy, and they do a degree and then they do their officer training. There was no time for that. So basically, that's how the Specialist Service Officer Scheme started. And I just happened to be on the first one with these uh, 12 other guys. But I was the only helicopter guys and I had a background in helicopters with my commercial licence. It was quite funny because the Army didn't know who to pick. They'd never done it. So they basically picked 13 guys that had a background in flying. So some of the guys had about 40 hours of flying fixed wing. One of the guys, a guy called Mike Doust, he's a Qantas uh, captain now, he he had about 1,500 hours teaching people down at Moorabbin. So there's a real spread of experience. But what happened was we got 11 out of the 13 through that year, and that was a very low failure rate. And the average for the Army is 40% and seems to still to this day be about a 40% failure rate over the period of your your flying training. But before we'd gotten there, they'd had 60, 80, and even one or two courses, 100% failure rate, where uh, no one had gotten through. So for us to get 11 out of 13 through, it proved to the Army that the SSO scheme was a, a good idea and that it would probably achieve the numbers of pilots they needed rapidly. So to this day, it continues, and in fact, uh, October this year, we celebrate 30 years of SSO pilots in the Army, which is, which is terrific. And uh, I've talked to a few of the guys on that original course that we need to organise some sort of, um, I guess we call it Australia a piss-up, <laughs> we call it a drink session uh, down in either Sydney or Melbourne, which we'll, we'll organise this year for October, to basically celebrate 30 years of SSO pilots. Uh, and that's how I got started and, um, and then headed off at the end of that course, I was the only one that went to 161 Ricky Squadron in Holsworthy, Sydney, because uh, there were very few of us uh, getting through and being spread out. So four guys went to Blackhawk training, and the other um, the other seven of us uh, ended up we ended up in Porter or Kiowa, is how it worked out, and uh, that was the beginning of my army flying career. Now I, I tell you, and again, I've been fed some notes here that. Um... You know, and I can only imagine turning up as the very first SSO. You would have been a 
uh, you know, a, a funny, strange creature walking into a in, into an army unit. Uh, so how'd they go down? Oh, it was a, it was a bit of a disaster actually because I was the first SSO pilot at Holsworthy. So back then, the first brigade was at Holsworthy, and in that brigade area was one six one recce squadron, and we had um, I think we had nine or ten Kiwas at the time. And the squadrons are quite small for, for 10 aircraft. We only had about 12 pilots uh, in a squadron. So I've got there as the first SSO. And my OC at the time was uh, Brian Millen. And I, I walked in in shorts and T-shirt on a, uh, I think I got there on like a Friday. Uh, and uh, I was just sort of trying to find somebody to help me because I'd never been there. And I bumped into my OC, but he was in shorts and T-shirt as well. Uh, but he, he obviously looked a bit smarter than I did. And I said, oh, g'day, mate, just uh, trying to work out uh, where I find the, all the pilots. And he, he looks at me and he goes, who are you? And I said, oh, I'm Matt Barker. I'm, I'm the new uh, pilot here. And he goes, uh, well, if you go up into that building, um, you can find them and uh, you might want to know that I'm your OC. And are you, are you one of those SSO pilots? And I was like, oh, God, this isn't going very well. I said, oh, yes, I am actually, uh, sir. And then he, he said, oh, do you know I wrote three papers to try to try to stop you guys being <laughs> in the Army? And I said, oh, dear, okay. And, uh, and that's how he and I got going, which was quite uh, quite funny. But um, And then in that week down at the mess each day, because it's December, we're all in just the one brigade mess. People always ask you where you're from, and they'd always say to me, um, I'd bump into officers and they'd say, oh, when were you at RMC? And I knew this was a touchy subject because a lot of people in the Army at the time didn't agree with the SSOs and, and they certainly didn't agree that you could be an Army officer unless you'd attended um, RMC or ADFA. And, uh, and in previous to that was a place called Portsea where you, you would do a 12-month course. And the Portsea guys were known as half-bakes, which means they'd been half-baked in the oven by the RMC guys that done more training. And then we came along and had done 10 weeks of training, so we were considered almost pointless. And I remember one big lunch, and um, a guy asked me which company I'd been in RMC, and I just kind of ignored him. And he said, oh, were you in, you know, uh, Capiong or Kokoda Company? And I just said, oh, no, I didn't go there. And he said, oh, are you one of those um, those morons from Portsea? <laughs> I said, oh, not quite. <laughs> so we're moving, we're moving down the food chain here. It is, and then another guy looks at me. There's about 50 of these guys on this huge table having lunch, and then he looks up and he says, are you one of those SSO pilots? And I went, uh, actually, I am. Yep. Uh, yeah. And then about 30 of them stood up and walked away. Oh, and uh, I sat there going, oh, this is not going well at all. And, uh, and that's how it began. And I, and I remember sitting there wondering when my aviation brothers would uh, stand up to me. And one of them said to me, oh, this is a bit embarrassing, Maddie. Maybe you could eat somewhere else. <laughs> I said, oh. I said, maybe you guys could back me up. So uh, it was quite funny. And in fact, a few weeks later, I ended up at Tuckapunyal flying and this whole film crew were there and I'd been sent down there and they'd never heard of SSOs. And it was the new recruiting video for RMC. And it was a disaster because I got there and the whole film crew were there and a major, he's like a liaison officer for uh, PR. And he meets me at the uh, the, the helipad at Tuckapunyal just near the, the officer's mess. And uh, I walked up and said, oh, g'day, I'm Matt Barker. I've been sent here for a task, some sort of filming task. And he goes, oh, yes, this is the brand new video for RMC recruiting, and we need you to talk all about your time at RMC. <laughs> I was like, well, that is not going to go very well, mate. And I said, oh, I'm not sure if I can do that uh, because, um, yeah, it'd probably be better if I just talked about flying, perhaps. And his manager goes, look, mate, I need you to talk about RMC and your time there. I don't care about flying. And then I said, oh, I didn't go to RMC. And he, he suddenly realises, uh, and he's got the whole film crew, and they've already almost started filming. 
And uh, he says, can you, oh, he said, oh, my God, tell me you're not one of those portsy blokes. Can <laughs> we go again? I said, oh, well, actually, I said, uh, I hate to tell you this, but I'm, I'm an SSO pilot, and uh, I'm, I'm the first one in the unit, uh, and I've, I've just been sent down here to do this job for the morning. Uh, and to be honest with you, I prefer probably not to be here now. And he goes, well, you're absolutely useless. And, and meanwhile, the reporter's looking at me, going, are you in the Army? Like, are you an Army pilot? I said, I am, but I'm not quite what you need, I think. So, um, listen, I'll, I'll get back under my boss back in the bush because I've flown in from the bush and I'll, I'll see if I can get you another pilot. But I said, I don't think we've got any from RMC here at the moment. Um, but anyway, I'll see what I can do. And then this guy realises he's running out of time. So he says, look, just uh, try not to be an idiot and uh, do your best to talk about flying. Don't mention RMC. In fact, don't mention anything about the Army and just tell them how much fun you have flying. And I said, oh, yeah, I can do that. No worries at all. So anyway, we did this video, and then I was the, the face of RMC Aviation for about three years. And, and in this video, every other cadet talks about their time there except me, and all I do is talk about how much fun I'm having flying, because I didn't know anything else. And, uh, and this thing ran for three years, and, and one of my instructors uh, by the name of Steve Graham ended up as the recruiting officer in Sydney. And he rings me and says, I can't believe you're the, you're the face of RMC, but he said, I know the truth. You're one of those dirty SSOs. And, uh, anyway, so that's how it went. Uh, so we weren't very popular at the beginning, I, I must say, but I genuinely think uh, that without SSO pilots in the Army, uh, it wouldn't be what it is today. And I think at one point we were about, I remember in the late 90s, about 55% of pilots were SSOs to 45, 45% GSOs who are a general service officer or a, a career officer. But we outnumbered them for quite a while. Um, yeah, so I think the schemes have been terrific for everybody. And there'll be people who disagree, but you know, after a couple of years in, in a unit, there's very, very little difference, really. Most of it, I mean, so much stuff is, is on the job learning, you know, outside of the flying role that uh, you kind of pick it up as you go. But it does make for. I think you're right, actually. Yeah. And I think SSO pilots come up with good ideas because um, we, we weren't trained how to do things a set way, which is how RMC basically teach you know, young people to be uh, lieutenants uh, when they leave. And they're, they're given a, a almost a strict set of guidelines on how to do business. And then an SSO pilot comes in and, and thinks quite laterally, in my opinion, when we're given tasking. It's generally the SSO that comes up with the left field idea. Uh, and it's normally quite a good one that no one's ever thought of. But he's not, you know, restricted by what he was trained was the correct answer. And I've always found SSOs to be um, super keen to learn because they want to be there in the first place to fly. And they love flying in the military anyway, but they generally have a, quite an open mind as to how to do things. And I think that's been really healthy for uh, Army aviation. And, and, I, and I do believe that. Uh, and even to this day, when I fly with a mixed group of uh, career and specialist uh, pilot trainees, it's quite a spread of, um, of personalities and ideas because we have uh, several different avenues of getting in. And, and I think it's healthy. And I think I taught at Fort Rucker for a year and meeting a, a warrant officer candidate uh, trainee or a walk as they call them, compared to a, um, a guy they used to refer to as a ring knocker. Uh, he's been to the, the uh, academy and, and they, they think completely differently when it comes to problem solving. So I don't know, I think it's healthy. All right, moving on from that, and um, you know, anyone listening, the Australian Army now is, is very tight and disciplined, but it sounds like you guys got up to a, you know, a, bit, of, uh, a bit of stuff down there. In, I'm guessing it is in Sydney. But uh, things like nude flights and things like that. So, can you can you talk back <laughs> about that sort of stuff? I will admit that uh, I will I will admit that I've, I've I've got many stories, but all the good ones 
the older ones where you were on your own and, and, and the rule was what, what uh, happens away stays away, which I assume is a, an old adage for many people. But um, we had a good friend of mine. He got out of the army uh, and ended up on his last flight. He was on his way, in fact, to be the aide to the Governor-General, so that'll narrow down who that could be. But uh, on his last flight, he um, he got approval to do a Sydney overflight, basically, to go and go down Sydney Harbour and just enjoy your last flight because he was off for a a non-flying posting for a couple of years, and he uh, he basically took off from 161, headed down the back of the range and uh, landed, and then he jumped out and basically stripped off to his boots, his gloves and his helmet, and then he got back in, and uh, and off he went. And he thought, oh, it'd be much nicer if I did this with the doors off and nude because it'll it, it's, it's a lot more fun. So off he goes, heads uh, over Bankstown Airport up to uh, Parramatta and then down the um, helicopter lane. He's uh, making all the calls, doing all the right things, except he's nude. He goes over the Harbour Bridge out to the heads and then does a U-turn. And on the way back, he got a chip light, and, uh, <laughs> which he was stressing out about. Because when you get a, a, any caution light in a, in a Kiowa or a, or a Bell 206 jet range, it's pretty rare, actually. So he sees this caution light, and he's passing, uh, I think he's passing about the zoo at this point, uh, over the main area of Sydney Harbour. And he got this chip light. And he, he thinks, well, I'll, I'll, I'll hit the fuzz buster and I'll go a bit fast. Because if it doesn't bust, he has to land. Yeah, yeah. And he was trying to work out where he could land. Um, but and he, was, he told me he was going to end up in the botanical gardens near the opera house if he had to land, leap out, get changed, and hopefully get himself squared away. But anyway, busted. And uh, he got lucky and uh, headed back up the harbour lane, back out to the uh, the range at Holdsworth. He got dressed to get it, came in and, and then at the bar spins the worry. Uh, it was very funny. We're all killing ourselves laughing because uh, when he was telling it, like he was seriously um, maxed out that he was going to be done forever. And he'd lose, he'd lose his next posting, which is a pretty plush posting for a pilot uh, living down at the uh, the Governor General's house in Canberra. He's got three aides and uh, he was going to be the new one uh, that year. So uh, he got away with it. But uh, it, was a, it was a terrific time. And I think uh, I liked it because we're flying about 600 hours a year, a uh, single pilot. And you were accelerated really quickly from being supervised as a pilot, what we call a Category D pilot, to being unsupervised, a Category C pilot, was only six months. And so after six months, you're basically on your own. And you could go from being supervised daily to then launching on a one or two month survey task on your own with a, with a tradesman. So these are where all the stories would happen because I've only got six months experience and suddenly I'm on my own. And uh, we had some terrific... Uh, Terrific times, and uh, on one of those ones, I I was sent north um, to support the 2nd Cavalry Regiment for about uh, two or three weeks up at Catherine, where they had their whole headquarters in the Catherine showground. And uh, anyway, on the way there, I trained my tradesmen how to fly because I said, look, anything can happen on these trips, and I'd much rather you could fly than you can't fly, and we could sort of share the flying, you know. And I said, I wasn't an instructor at any but this was sort of common ground back then. But, uh, and so a lot of the tradies who you were sent away with didn't want to fly, and they would purposely take the dual controls out really? to make a point that they, ah. were, yeah, they weren't covering for the pilot. They'd say, no, no, I'm not flying. So I had one guy who was very keen. Uh, his name was uh, Greg Williams, terrific guy. So he and I uh, spent over a month away, a month and a half away on this trip, uh, and we finally got to Catherine, and we landed really late. Uh, they had to put out a TH for us because back then we didn't have MVGs. We weren't using them very often, sorry. And I'd only just been qualified um, the previous year, but I hadn't done much. Uh, anyway, we land there, and on that night, it's the Catherine uh, BNS ball, 
And I've just landed next to the BNF ball in a helicopter. Oh, fantastic. And, uh, well, it was a great night. Oh, it's fantastic. So I was supposed to be tasking first thing at the morning, but I've just landed and leaping out of the helicopter. You know, it was just a, a great scene. And all the 2nd Cavalry Regiment guys who we lived with in Sydney came up and they said, oh, you bastard, you've, you've set the scene for uh, madness with the women with your helicopter. And I had a bit of a laugh about it. And I didn't realise that actually it turned out to be a terrific night. And I had to cancel the next day's flying, uh, claiming that I was sick because basically I'd been up all night at this BNS ball. And the, the helicopter parked out the front with all the lights on it and everything just made their day for the, the BNS. It made a real showstopper for the, the entrance. And um, anyway, what happens is that uh, about a day or two later, we've been flying uh, quite a bit. And my tradie was going out at night uh, into town because he wasn't flying. And he, I wake up uh, a few days later and my OC happened to be there, the same guy that had told me he, he, uh, he didn't rate SSOs when I very first met him. And, uh, anyway, he wakes me up and he said, oh, there's all these, um, so can you get out of bed, Matt? Uh, there's all these Swedish backpackers here and they're here for their joy flight. And I was like, I don't even know what's going on. So I get out of bed, out of my, off my stretcher and I wander outside and next to my aircraft are these two unbelievably good-looking women, uh, just stunning Swedish backpackers. And next to them are about 40 or 50 of these Second Cavalry Regiment soldiers and officers just gawking, going, how do you pilots do this? <laughs> I didn't even know what was going on. And so I walk up to my tradesman, uh, Greg, and said, uh, hey, Greg, uh, can I have a chat? Um, what's going on? And he said, oh, I need you to take these women flying. <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, why am I doing that, mate? And he goes, oh. Well, because I, I uh, had a terrific night with them last night, and the payback is that you're taking them on a Catherine Gorge scenic. <laughs> You've got to be kidding. He goes, no, no, I need you to do it, because you said it was a big night, and uh, this is the sort of the payback. I said, mate, have you noticed that we're inside an army uh, training area, and there's about 50 witnesses, including our, our, our OC from uh, Sydney? If I put them in that aircraft, I'm going to lose my job permanently, and I'll probably get arrested. And he said to me, oh, well, does that mean you're not going to take them? <laughs> Actually, uh, I'm not taking the boat. And um, he said, uh, "He said, oh, this is terrible. I said, well, I said, it might be for you, mate, but I prefer to keep my job. So I said to him, look, we're going up to Darwin next to support the uh, SAS. That was the next task I had. So I said, tell him we'll meet him up there in Darwin in a couple of weeks. So he cuts the deal with these women. They look very sad and off they go. Uh, everybody's very upset. And, and anyway, the boss comes up to me and goes, what have you been up to? And I said, oh, nothing, sir. Nothing's going on. It's a, it's a, it's a pure mistake from the tradesman, and I'll, I'll correct his ways. So anyway, we get away with that, and then the following day, I've got a task with the Commander Norforce. So he's coming, or Commander Norcom, sorry, Northern Command. Uh, and I had to fly up to Darwin to get him, uh, bring him back to watch the 2nd Cavalry Regiment, and then at the end of the day, I take him back. But I've been flying a lot. I've been doing maybe, you know, eight-hour days flying, and I'm living on coke and coffee, and I'm kind of saying yes to everything, trying to prove that uh, SSO pilots can do everything. No worries. I never say no, and this is about to catch me out. So I launch very early, about 6 a.m. Uh, I get going out of Catherine, fly up to Darwin, which is a couple of hours away, uh, refuel, and then jump into the uh, Larrakia base, which is sort of a, a patrol boat base of the Navy and it's uh, Northern Command Headquarters. So I land next to the headquarters, pick up the the, uh, the brigadier, I think he was, might have been a major general, and um, I now fly him back to Catherine. And then I land at Catherine in the showground and, and he jumps out and then Greg Williams puts his head in and says, hey, can you take me down to the RAF base at Tyndall and I'll, I just want to go to the gym for a few hours because uh, I've got nothing to do. So I said, yeah, jump in. So he jumps in the aircraft and off we go. 
And then we get to the top of climb at about 1,000 feet. I call uh, Tyndall Tower to let them know we're coming in for a clearance. And then suddenly I feel really woozy. Like, uh, And it turns out I'm dehydrated really badly. And I sort of look at, uh, at Greg, but my head's starting to roll around. My eyes are going to the back of the head. And I look at him and I go, I'm really not feeling well, mate. Something's wrong. And he looks at me and we've taken the dual controls out for the, the general. And so he's practiced all his flying. And now he's on his own. And anyway, I pass out. And I, I literally passed out at the controls. And over, I lean onto the cyclic and over we go. So we're, we're on our way down, accelerating from 1,000 feet. And so Greg reaches across. And with his left hand, he's trying to fly the aircraft. And with his right hand, he's punching me continuously. So maybe... This is payback for Nana. <laughs> <From> Nana. <laughs> so he's punching me, like literally continuously trying to wake me up. And he's trying to fly with his left hand. He's not even a pilot. And we're just slowly but surely coming down. Uh, we're going to hit the trees and the undershoot to the main runway at Catherine. And, uh, and meanwhile, there's a Hercules parked on the apron at the air movement section. And that was the standard Air Force uh, Hercules that does a run up and down Australia twice a week, moving people and cargo. And everybody's outside having all the cigarette smokers. There's a whole line of them back then, all waiting to get on board. So finally, just before we hit the ground, he actually does wake me up. And I look up and see in front of me a Herc. And we're only at about 100 feet off the ground, maybe not even that. And so I swing left, and then we hit the apron, probably at about 40 or 50 knots. And we slide down the apron in our Kiowa, and we grind to a halt. And uh, and then I just fall out the door. I undo my harness, and I just fell out because there was no doors on. I just fall out the door onto the ground. And uh, I get up and uh, I look at him and I just said, oh, I can't shut down. And, and I sort of waddle my way into the air movements. But people watching on the cigarette smoking <laughs> line, <laughs> see this heat go straight past them, just missing them, slid onto the ground, grinds to a halt. And I'm walking towards them, but I look drunk. I don't look like I'm dehydrated. I actually look drunk because I'm sort of falling over. <laughs> They're all starting to wonder about pilots. And I go into the movement section. I just collapsed on the floor and uh, I didn't move. That was me done. And uh, this little Air Force uh, corporal lady comes out and says, good morning, Timmy, am I all right? And I'm like, well, I don't know, but I, I don't normally lay here with my helmet on in my my, uh, my survival gear on your floor. I think you need to call a doctor. So she races off to get an ambulance and they take me away. Uh, in, in the end, about six litres of saline later, I come good. And I just remember my OC leaning over me, looking at me, saying, when did you pass out? <laughs> <laughs> and I go, I can't remember. And he goes, it was on the ground, wasn't it? And I said, yes, it was on the ground. And he said, that's correct. <laughs> so anyway, he, he then just took my aircraft. He, he signed for it, must have released it, took my aircraft, and he flew the uh, general back. And he, he didn't have any gear with him. He must have done it with a headset, I suppose. Uh, and then the problem was I, I came good, went into the mess, and, um, and met a young lady. It turned out she'd been in the air traffic control tower when I tried to kill myself. And uh, we're having a great time. <clears throat> and unfortunately, that night he turns up at about 10 o'clock with a spare change of clothes and my wash bag and a towel with the adjutant, the CEO of 2CAV, to check on me. And uh, it's kind of all go on the lounge with this girl. It was a disaster. <laughs> he, just, he says, she's bloody as though pilots. And he, he, I remember him throwing my wash bag up and hit me in the side of the head with it. And uh, I was just laying on the floor feeling terrible again, going, oh, this is just not going well at all. So uh, anyway, that was, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a hell of a day, actually. And then, yeah, so off we went and went up to Darwin and had a wonderful time. But when we got there uh, a week later, um, poor old Greg got to the transit lines in Darwin and uh, it was just a disaster. And it really was like World War II transit lines with big holes in, in the walls. 
and he came and saw me and said, look, have you seen where I'm living for a couple of weeks? It's not very good. Is there somewhere else that I could live uh, for the two weeks we're here? Uh, the RAF base supporting the SAS. And I said, oh, I don't know. I, I, can we get you accommodation somewhere else? So we tried and it turned out we couldn't. And I said, oh, well, I don't know. But I mean, it's pretty dire circumstances. So why don't I just promote you and you can come and live in the officer's mess with me? I don't think you can do that. But I said, yeah, I reckon I can do it. I mean, it's we're, we're out in the field. I'll just give you a promotion. Yet. <laughs> yeah, I did. So I promoted him to lieutenant on the spot. So we did it out the front of the officer's mess. And with my beret on and, and his beret on, I promoted Corporal Williams to Lieutenant Williams and said, right, let's go get on the mess. Let's get in the mess and get on the beers. So I took him up there and uh, I've given him my rank slides and we're just getting on it big time. It was just fantastic. And the mess, uh, PMT walked in, the president of the mess committee walks in, this RAF guy, and he has a medis, so we just introduce ourselves. And I said, oh, I'd like to introduce you to Lieutenant Williams. He's he was newly promoted this afternoon, it turns out. <laughs> goes, All right. So he puts 200 bucks over the bar to celebrate for getting promoted. And we, <laughs> so we just get on it. And uh, and so we cancelled the next day's flying because uh, we'd been on it again. And uh, and it didn't really matter. I was just going to do a, a bit of a survey of where I was flying with these guys. Um, and it was all night flying. Uh, so basically, we'd sleep in the day and then I'd fly till about 1, 2 in the morning. And then we'd try and get to this place called the Frontier Bar in Darm, which was a bit of a wild place then because it was only until 6 a.m. Uh, and then we'd go to bed and start again. And then in the day, there'd be this lieutenant working on my Kiowa and all the RAF guys couldn't work out why a lieutenant was doing all the servicings on the aircraft. <laughs> so he said, I don't know. He said, I've been promoted. So <laughs> I was a corporal last week. Now I'm a lieutenant. And, uh, and off we went and uh, had, a, had a terrific couple of weeks and... Um, but when we got back to Sydney, he wanted uh, he wanted higher disability allowance called HDA. <laughs> yeah, he had <laughs> yeah, yeah, asked for it. I said, oh. And I went and asked my troop commander. His name is Cameron Ross. Uh, Copter Cam, he used to be called. Uh, he, he's still around. About I, I told him what I'd done, and he, he couldn't believe it. He told me you didn't promote this guy. I said, yeah, I promoted him. He filled in the paperwork for HDA. And <laughs> oh. uh, he said, mate, you're going to be sacked. So anyway, he went out a chat to Craig uh, on my behalf, and it all disappeared. And uh, he accepted that he, he wasn't going to get um, high disability allowance for a couple of weeks. So anyway, that was the Greg Williams story. Oh, I, just, yeah. I just can't picture that happening <laughs> in today's day and world. Well, no, he's the only guy I've approached. But uh, back then, I didn't see, see anything wrong with it. I was like, well, I mean, we're dire. Like, we need to do something. And, and anyway, we had, a, we had a far better time as two lieutenants than a lieutenant the corporal. It was way better. <laughs> <laughs> now, in that story, um, stepping back, you mentioned the, the TA to, uh, approach at night. Now, I've only done those in training. I've never actually had to do one in anger. So can you describe that for people who have never seen a, a TA and never had to fly one? Oh, yeah, no worries. So there's a couple of ways you can get, uh, as, as anybody out there listening, that's helicopter pilots know. And when, when I joined, it was uh, a single light source. Somebody would put a, a light out, and we had to learn how to fly from unaided from... Um, so a night vision with no night vision, how to get from our lower safe altitude down to the ground. So we used to teach a single light source approach on a, on a heading uh, and basically an angle in the window and then set speeds and heights. And we had a bardic, which was a, um, a light source that gave you a red, green and orange coloured angle on approach and they would set the angle to beat the, uh, the obstacles in the undershoot to the approach path and uh, basically... When you when you track towards it, you'd see red first, which meant you were undershooting. And if you just held your height, you would then see green and down you'd come. Uh, and then the other way we did it was a T-aid, which is basically uh, five lights in the shape of a T. 
Uh, so three across the top, 10 metres apart, and then another two down the centre to make the T-shape. And with that T-shape, uh, you would fly your approach. So you would line up on the T for your, um, your approach direction. And then on the angle, when you come down, you can see a very small split in the vertical lights, the vertical three lights, and that tells you that you're on the right angle. And, and down we go. So we still teach those in all Army uh, helicopters and Army pilots have to know how to fly a T-8 approach. And that's what we use if you have an MVG failure uh, and you have to recover unaided back to the bush where your troop or squadron are. They'll set out a T-8 um, that we've all agreed to before we start night flying. And that's how you're going to get back down again. And in America, they use um, an upside-down Y, which I had to learn how to use when I flew uh, Kiowas and Cobras over there. I think they used to call it the bullet trap. And they like the Y because for a, a four-and-a-half-seating aircraft like a Cobra or an Apache, the front seater can have a light next to him and the back seater can have one next to him. So when I joined me, had the upside-down Y, but it was sort of gotten rid of in a preference to the T, this T-shaped light system. But, um, after 30 years, we're still doing it, uh, and we and we still use them in anger if if you need them. So when we deploy as a squadron or a troop, someone always takes a bag full of lights that we're going to use to get down again. Yeah, so a really, it's very very easy, simple way of getting um, yourself back down on the ground. Yeah, and you know, I think most of the night flying we actually did on operations or anything for me was was all obviously MVG. But uh, I remember you know, Oki on a dark night trying to fly these TAs and. You know, it's basically the only lights and the rest of the world is black. It was, uh, that was always challenging. Oh, absolutely. And, and we used to have an issue with the single light source. Uh, we had that, uh, you have that thing called autokinesis with your eye that when it's just looking at a single uh, bright object in a, with a black background, your eye tends to move around. And it can be very disorientating uh, when we used to teach the single light source. So as a young instructor, I was always praying for moon. Uh, when we went out to do these yeah. these light sources. So we would set them up all around Canberra, uh, up in the mountains and down in the valleys uh, for the students. And it was quite challenging to land a single light source on top of a pinnacle or um, a T-8. We would normally set those up on a ridge line or down in a valley. And you'd be descending sometimes five or 6,000 feet down onto this thing in absolute pitch black. And it was extremely disorientating. But we had a very good... Uh, instrument flying phase then where students would do then up to 50 hours of instrument flying and they were very, very good at it. And it was a single pilot standard for instrument flying. So with that, I found the night unaided um, flying they had to do, they were quite good at it. But these days we've really backed it off that a, a T8 approach has become almost an emergency procedure because we fly, you know, 99% of the time we fly on, on night vision now and the, all the unaided techniques that I was taught when I went through, we don't really teach anymore. In fact, when I went through, we didn't have NVGs, so all of my training compadres would be up in porters at about eight or 9,000 feet over us, and they would drop flares, and we would dive down as single pilot students underneath them, under these flares, and do our reconnaissance uh, with all the old Vietnam uh, guys teaching us how to do night visual reconnaissance using parachute flares. Uh, yeah, and I remember doing that. I was out of control. I remember doing that as a cadet. Um, we would do a month. The ROBC was a month, the regimental officer's basic course. So it was your tactics phase at the end of course. And it went for a month. So we did a week in Canungra, which was an army base, a week in Sydney, Canberra. And then you flew your car up to Shoulder Bay, which is, for the listeners, north of Brisbane. It's about a, an eight-hour drive north of Brisbane or a couple of hours in a helicopter. 
and we fly. That's the, one of the biggest army um, training areas. So we got there for a, a, a two-week period. So there were five Kiowa students when I was there, and um, and four, uh, sorry, uh, three porters. Uh, sorry, four porter students. And um, yeah, we had to do everything unaided. So we used to fly one kilometre each side of track, and 500 feet above that was your lower safe altitude. And um, for the tactics phase, we'd fly to a holding area unaided, and then the porters would come over the top, all our training mates, and they'd drop the flares. And the trick was to, when the flares went out, you were coming back up again in the pitch black, but only from about 10 or 50 feet, like we were below the tree line doing reconnaissance as uh, trainees. It was, a, it was a huge amount of responsibility they gave us. But, uh, you know, it was very well trained, and, and uh, but all the old buggers that had flown in Vietnam were still around then, all the majors. Nearly all of them and the lieutenant colonels had been to Vietnam with 161 recce squadron and the captains were probably a bit after that. Perhaps they joined in the mid to late 70s and had missed out on it. But, um, yeah, they had all the old majors run the tactics phase. So we had a lot of uh, uh, Vietnam techniques were taught to us because that's what they knew and uh, they felt that that was the best way to stay alive. So these guys ran the courses and they were pretty full on, actually. I remember being quite a stressed-out cadet <laughs> and what we kept being asked to do. and We used to live hoist each other. A mate of mine, Dave Collins, hoisted me out of a pad and then he just left and he left me hanging on the hoist about 40 feet below the uh, the aircraft as a bit of a joke and he wouldn't bring me up and he's flying around with me hanging underneath it in one of those little little uh, harnesses. And, uh, and when I finally got on board, I'm trying to kill him, basically. I'm trying to reach him and <laughs> take him out. But uh, that was how they did it then. And, uh, yeah, very exciting times and, and everything back then was unaided. And then I'd been in a squadron for about a year when uh, night vision goggles were introduced uh, into the Army. So that was in um, 1989. We started flying on them. And I did my course in October that year. But I'd been in the squadron for a year by then and uh, was given these night vision goggles, which I thought were pretty amazing, actually. And I did the second course uh, in the Army on flying those. And, and when I went back with them, um, yeah, like you'd be one of the only guys qualified. So we kept flying unaided uh, and use the night vision every now and then. But uh, yeah, it, was the, it was the very first time when we were strapping silooms onto the cockpit and cutting little holes in black masking tape. And that's how we NVG compatible with the cockpits. Um, we would have those all strapped along the uh, instrument combing. Okay, and just turn all the uh, panel lights down. Yeah, because they didn't have a full NVG cockpit. So we would just use green silooms, cover them in black uh, 100 mile an hour tape and then just cut a really thin open line through them and then tape those to the instrument combing and we just use that for uh, lighting. And then they had a couple of lights which were covered but not all of them and if they weren't covered uh, you'd just get your grease pencil out and colour them in. <laughs> so, so I remember colouring in the, the radar height warning. <laughs> so, a bit silly. I look back on that going, it's ridiculous. It was the one light telling me I was about to hit the ground and I'd coloured it in with a black pencil because it was annoying. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's let's jump. There's a, there's a story, and I think because I remember hearing the very very basics of it a long time ago, and again, it's kind of one of those folklore things that float around. And I didn't know who to contribute it to, but is it, I think there's a a troop trainer on the way back from Point Cook to to Holsworthy, and I think there's a zoo involved. Is that that one, or is that? Uh, is yeah. That very <laughs> no, no, that is the one. It, uh, it is. Uh, it's one of my early stories as well when I was. I was being supervised in one helicopter and then in a second helicopter as the, the supervising pilot, but it's his first supervising task. So it's my first trip away uh, for a few weeks and it's his first task. 
looking after a junior pilot. So it's a disaster already and we haven't left. And we took a different tradesman with us. Uh, this guy was an absolute maniac on the beers, but a, a very good technician. Like he's, you had to sort of, there's a bit of ebbs and flows with him. And uh, so we supported um, the staff college down in Melbourne where the old Australian Army Staff College was. And that was where you went for a year as a major before you got promoted to lieutenant colonel. So we got sent down there for two weeks to support them. And basically with all of their their tutes, they call them tactical exercise without troops. Uh, basically, it's it's basically exercise planning. We had to fly them all over the uh, over Victoria, basically, where they were doing these brigade and division size planning exercises, so that they could see the actual uh, ground. And we would fly them around all day, uh, and then go back at night, get on the beers because we were living in a pub, so that was actually a pretty good highlight. And uh, and then anyway, so it's all over, and it's time to go home. So, because I'm the junior pilot, so I do everything, and the, the supervised pilot does nothing except turn up, sign for his aircraft. And by then, I should have the meteorology, the no tams, the flight planning's done. Um, every, all the aircraft should be packed and ready to go. And uh, but he wants to leave at um, seven o'clock. So then I had to get up pretty early, like about, I remember going about four thirty or five o'clock to get everything organised. And when I came out of my out of my room in the mess, it was fogged in in Melbourne, totally fogged in. So I thought, oh, well, we're not going to go anywhere. So I'll do the planning, but I won't bother submitting the flight plan because obviously we're not going to get going. So then uh, this uh, Dirk's his name. Uh, Dirk comes up to me and says, uh, have you got everything right to go? And I said, well, I haven't put the flight plan in because we're fogged in, mate. I can't even see the aircraft in there 30 metres away. And he says, why are you being like this? <laughs> I go, oh, there we go. <laughs> and he says, mate, when you're an army pilot, we just get on with things. And maybe as an you need to learn this. I went, oh, right. So do you want me to submit flight plans? So he goes, of course I do. I go, right. So basically we slid to 8 o'clock departure because I, I, I hadn't done anything. So I get that organised. And then about 7.30, he says to me, where is the tradesman? And we couldn't find him. So I, I basically put the aircraft, done all the before flights on them and got them ready. And I said, oh, I don't know. I haven't seen him. <laughs> so we couldn't find this guy. So it turns out he'd had a last hurrah down in Melbourne uh, with these women he'd met. And we, it took us till 8.30 to find him, but we found him on the beach nude with these two women, and everybody was nude. And uh, so Dirk is threatening to charge him on the spot with being AWOL and uh, drags him back to the aircraft. But he absolutely reeks of alcohol. Uh, we found his clothes and packed him up, and, and basically he chucks him in my aircraft. And he said, I don't want to talk to him. Uh, I'm sick of him, and I'm going to charge him. So it's quite funny. So I go, I'll take him. No worries. So we get going in the fog, which was really – I found it really stressful because I came to the hover at about 100 feet above this, this uh, helipad we're at at this army base. And I couldn't see anything. So he says to me, you're going to get going. <laughs> I said, all right. So I start hopper taxiing forward. And basically, we follow the edge of the Port Phillip Bay, which basically we're at the southern end and we've got to get to the northern side. So we're just going to go basically clockwise by the western shore. So it should take me about 15, 20 minutes. But anyway, after an hour, we're still going because I'm just hopper taxiing forward, flying along the edge of the coast. And he's in, he's in formation with you? or yeah, He's behind me. Yeah, he's just following me, telling me to hurry up the whole time. Yeah, yeah. So I got it up to maybe, I think we got to about 60 knots is about as fast as we got. And we finally got there about an hour to an hour and a half later. And we're really running late now. So it's about uh, eight, so it's about 10 o'clock in the morning and we're still in Melbourne. And we're supposed to be basically halfway to Sydney by now. And uh, he, he said to me, hurry up and get the fuel done. We've got to get going. Like We need to get home. And I was like, mate, we need to... 
we need to all calm down. <laughs> I'm willing to pay for hotels if we'll just stay in Melbourne tonight. I mean, who would who would want to not stay in Melbourne for the night? Are you still fog, you still fogged in? At yeah, the no, it's lifted slightly, so it's a couple of hundred feet now. Okay, it's yeah, burning yeah. off slowly but surely in <laughs> Melbourne. And he says to me, "Why are you being, you know, why are you being like this?" And I said, "Oh, I just feel a bit uncomfortable." And he said, "Mate, you need to grow up." <laughs> I said, "Oh, okay." So he said, "Let's get on with it." So anyway, we did the refuel. We got going, and we're heading up the western side of Melbourne's control area. We're heading north, and it's so bad, the weather, that I'm sitting over a main road running north, and I'm doing about 60 knots, which is about 100 kilometres an hour. And Melbourne, unbeknownst to us, had had a brand-new radar system put in that year, and uh, they were watching us on radar. Uh, Not that I was squawking anything. It was just a, a primary radar return. But they reckoned the, the radar was so accurate that they could see like major trucks running up that road. But they said it was very accurate. And they'd been watching us for some time. And I'd been sitting behind this semi-trailer, basically, so I knew where I was going. Because I couldn't see ahead any more than you know a couple of hundred metres. So obviously we shouldn't be there. And I, and I will say that straight away, that we should not have been there. But anyway, we're, we're heading up this road. And then suddenly I went into cloud. So I've gone inadvertent IMC. And as I go into it, Dirk came past my right window and straight past me in front of me and he nearly hit me. So I broke right and went down and underneath him and we we're only at 200 feet. So I'm in cloud in a right turn, 200 feet, and I'm now descending. But I had to get out of the way of him. So we, just, we nearly hit each other, but we missed. And I come out of that descent and I nearly hit somebody's clothesline in the back of their yard because we were that low. And then I roll out, uh, now heading east, I've rolled about 90 degrees which is very bad because to the east is the Melbourne control zone. <laughs> so, not that I was thinking about that at the time. I was just happy to be alive. And so I've rolled out and I literally, my skids went over this person's roof, maybe 10 feet off their roof, and I've survived. So my drunken tradesman is now wide awake. <laughs> he's like screaming with head on. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that sober you up quick. Oh, yeah, he's had a dose of, uh, of everything in his body. He's like pumped up to the max and screaming. And uh, so he was asleep, but now he's not asleep. <laughs> so I just start charging to the east because it didn't look too bad to the east, like the cloud was a little bit higher. And so off I go. So Dirk has also come out of the cloud in a left turn and he's trying to find me and he's calling me on the radio, it turns out, but I, I couldn't hear him. Basically because I had maxed out at that point, I was panicking. And uh, you can imagine on the radar, these two blips, they were watching suddenly something happens. And now my blip on the radar is hitting due east and uh, meanwhile coming down the main runway of Melbourne on a long final for one, whatever it is runway 17 or whatever is a 747 for Qantas coming out of LA and uh, and I didn't know that so there's this blip coming down to the runway and then there's my helicopter basically tracking straight towards it and everybody is now yelling at me on the radio but I'm ignoring everybody because I'm still in a bit of a panic and Dirk is chasing me. <laughs> so he's about half a mile to a mile behind me, screaming at me to turn around. I just can't hear him. And then I start going, God, where am I? What's going on? And then suddenly I see this big uh, kangaroo. And I was like, what is that? And it was the kangaroo on the tail of a Qantas 747. <laughs> so he's coming out of the cloud, and at about 100 <laughs> feet off the ground, he went all four engines full full power. And around he goes, because uh, I've broken the, um, the lateral spacing, the minimum. And this poor guy is on finals, just about to touch down, and Randy goes. And I just, I just remember watching this giant red tail go straight past my window, going, "What on God's earth is he doing here?" And then I look up and I see this runway, and I go straight over the top of it, and I go, 
I know exactly where I am. I'm in Melbourne. Oh, God, what have I done? And I start turning left over the main runway, and there's the control tower. And round I go, and now I'm heading west, which is uh, back into the weather, I might add. Dirk is screaming at me to turn around. So I'm now complying with him. And now uh, Melbourne Approach get on the radio on the emergency freak telling us to contact them. So I ring them up and contact them and said, uh, this is Army Possum section. Uh, and they're like, uh, are you aware that you've broken airspace and you've made us send a 747 round? And I went, yes, but are you aware that I've gone inadvert an IMC? I've had a near midair. I had a near sea fit. And then I nearly hit a 747. And I'm having a really bad day. This <laughs> controller goes, oh, right, are you declaring a mayday? And I said, no, I'm not declaring a mayday now. I should have declared one five minutes ago. But, you know, I'm alive and I'm leaving. Uh, and anyway, he says, I want you to squawk this code. And basically, he needs me to squawk this code so he can confirm I'm in his airspace. And Dirk is now telling me not to do that. <laughs> so anyway, Dirk's yelling in one ear, in one radio, don't do it. And then the controller's yelling at me for the fourth time because I'm ignoring him. And then I said, oh, I better squawk it. So they got us. I squawked it. Uh, one mile inside his boundary, which caused us many issues later on. So anyway, we, we get out of there, and then I back to crawling speed, back on that same bloody road, and I get through the weather, and then it did clear up a bit, and uh, we basically pushed north to a place called Albury, where we landed and got fuel. And so anyway, we got there, and he said to me, uh, he said, look, we need to hurry up. We're running out of light. It's really late. And I said, mate, I have had enough. I'm a brandy pilot. I have literally nearly been killed like four times today. I can't take anymore. And he said, would you stop being like so, so he basically said, stop being a poof, and, <laughs> which is probably not a nice thing to say. He said, stop being a poof and can you just get on with it? And I said, well, I've had enough, mate. I'm happy to live in Albury. You know, I don't care. And he goes, no, no, I'll tell you what. I'm meeting my mum and dad down there because he was from Albury and they've got McDonald's for us for a bit of lunch. So you fill the aircraft, but only fill them to 450 pounds and full fuel's 580. So just fill them to 450, that's all we need. I'll go get lunch, say hello to mum and dad, and just hurry up. And he said, I tell you what, how about I leave? Will that make you happier? I said, actually, that would make me happier. Yeah, you leave. I'll go number two for once. I said, I'm going to be killed. So anyway, I put 450 pounds in his aircraft, and then when I get to my aircraft and filling it, I can't find him. So the guy said, oh, do you want to keep fueling him? Yeah, yeah, I'll just fill mine full which is going to save me in a little while. So I fill mine to 580, and then he turned up about 10 or 15 minutes later, and he said, are you ready to go? I said, yeah, I'm good to go. So I'm eating my cheeseburger while he's yelling at me about something while we're running late, and, uh, you know, that I wasn't displaying any attributes of a good army pilot. (laughs) So so we launch out of Albury, and we're on our way to Sydney, and it is actually pretty late now. It's like about 2 o'clock, maybe a bit after that, but the weather's really bad. And uh, it's it's eight eights overcast, so not a lot of light, and we get going. And while we're tracking to Sydney, we're getting lower and lower with the weather, and we end up in this river called the uh, the Wallandilly River. And if you ever look at your map, the Wallandilly River tracks basically northeast, and then it bends north up into the Warragamba Dam, and that's like the major water reservoir for Sydney's water. So when we were heading up the Wallandilly. And then we enter the dam, and we really are now very low. And I, and I will admit that again, that we shouldn't have been that low. But we're about, you know, three to five feet off the water, doing about 100 knots, and we're racing up the water. And I'm watching Dirk ahead of me, and he keeps climbing up to the cloud trying to get out of the dam. But the cloud is spilling over the eastern edge of the dam and coming down into the uh, oh, water okay. area. So you trap below the, the, the southeast. dam line. Yeah, it's closed off. So we turned around twice uh, at low level and then behind us it also closed. So now we're running north 
up this dam. And unbeknownst to us, we went underneath about four sets of power lines and we never saw them. We were that low and uh, the, the power lines were actually in cloud and we, we flew under all of them, it turns out. Uh, but we didn't know that. And then he says to me, uh, how's your fuel going? And I looked at my car. I said, oh, I've got pretty good. I've got um, about 200, 220 pounds left. And he said, uh, my fuel light's been on for 10 minutes. Oh, now, yes. in a car where that's really bad, because when your fuel light goes off, you've got, um, you've got 80 pounds of fuel left, about 20 minutes of fuel. Uh, but you don't have much. And his light's now been on for 10 minutes, and we cannot get out of the dam. So we're, we're, we keep tracking north. And in fact, I told him that he was stuffed. I remember saying, you're stuffed. <laughs> you're going to die. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I had a bit of a chuckle about that, saying, ha-ha, says you're right. You, you've nearly killed me. And uh, so we're, we're racing north, and then we see the damn wall up ahead, the Warragamba Dam Wall. So we do a quick stop, and we stop about 10 feet off the water. But I've gone up next to him on his right-hand side, and we're both just looking at this giant damn wall. And uh, we come up together in the hover. We come up about 80 feet or something, maybe 100 feet to get over the wall. And in front of us is just a sea of fog and cloud. And I don't even know what we're going to do at this point. So he just says to me, turn right, find somewhere to land. I don't care where it is, just find somewhere. I reckon I've got about two or three minutes fuel left. Uh, And he is generally about to die. So, uh, So anyway, I turn right, but suddenly I'm in the lead again. And, oh, this is a disaster. How have I found myself in this position? So we pivot right, and I'm now air taxiing over people's houses, trying to find a backyard big enough to land in that I can get him into, and then I'll go and find another one. And we were looking at all these houses. So this is the suburb of Warragamba, and we're just trying to find some land. So you're still in fog, or you're still in clouds, so you're rooftop height. Yeah, we're only about 50 feet, and we're literally hovering over people's houses, and he's screaming at me, literally, find some of the land, I'm out of fuel. And I look up ahead, and I see this clearing, and I go, I go, uh, two, this is one. Um, I've got a clearing up ahead. It just says, get in there now. So basically, I accelerated and then dove even lower and, and racing towards this um, this clearing I've seen. It's all surrounded by trees and that. And then I start a big decel in the quick stop, and I'm coming over the trees only at about 30 feet, and then I'm about to descend down into the clearing I've found. And as I'm descending down into it, I'm like, gee, that's a big fence there. Bloody hell, that's huge. And I'm coming down into it, and I'm like, God, that's a big bloody book. And as I terminate to the hover, it's a lion. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and I'm about, to be, I'm about to be killed again. I go, what is going on? And I've, I'm ended up in, a, in the African lion safari. And I didn't know that. And I'm landing in one of the lion pens. And there's two female lions, which are going ballistic because there's now a helicopter in their, <laughs> in their pen. And we've got the doors off. And so my tradie is now screaming his head off because... He's got a lion on his side, and I've got a lion on my side, and we're just about to touch down. And I started screaming out, lion, 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 and I'm coming up and out of the area, and dirt goes straight over the top of me, and he cannot – he's laughing himself. He's about to die, but now he's laughing. And, uh, yeah, we're nearly being eaten. So we come out of there, and then we turn left, and we found a, a rugby oval, a footy oval, and we landed on that. And while we're waiting out for two minutes, Doug actually gets out of his helicopter, comes over, he says, mate, I have never heard anything like that. He's laughing, goes, did you see how big those lines were? I said, mate, I nearly got eaten. I saw how big they were. And uh, so we, we shut down, went up to the pub, and I just started drinking at the emergency rate because I said, right, if I drink, you can't make me fly. So my tradie is drinking double bourbons. I'm drinking double bourbons. And I said, right. And I actually said to him, I cannot fly. I, I'm now, I'm, I'm officially drunk. You cannot make this fly. <laughs> we, uh, anyway, we went back to the, um, we went back to the, uh, the unit and basically he said to the tradie, look, mate, if you stay with the aircraft, 
I'm going to get to this party I'm trying to get to. So it turns out the whole journey was about my offsider meeting this woman that he'd met and she was going to be at this party on the Friday night in Sydney and that was the urgency to get home. And he'd never told me this till then. And I'm like, I've nearly been killed, I don't know how many times today and this is all because of a, a girl you've met. And he goes, yeah, yeah, I'll just try to hook up with her. And I was like, oh, I can't believe it. So anyway, we got back to the unit. He'd promised not to charge the tradie if he stayed with the aircraft, which is probably a bad call. And the tradie didn't care. He said, I don't care. I'm at a pub and I'll stay here the night. So we got back to the unit, went into town, got there about one in the morning, and it turns out this girl wasn't even there. So anyway, the next day we went and got the aircraft, took him back to the unit, and we decided, uh, basically, we weren't sure whether we should tell anybody what had happened. We, we thought we'd go away with it. But on the Monday morning, the boss walked in and said, I'm not sure what happened on Friday with you two, but I'll give you 10 minutes to set up your briefing. Um, you'll tell me what happened. If you lie to me, you'll be out of the army by lunchtime, both of you. And we're like, I was like, oh, right, I think they're onto us. <laughs> <laughs> I had to get up with all my maps and he, he basically said, right, you're the junior pilot, you will tell the story. And so I got up and then all the squadron pilots wandered in. There's about 10 of them, maybe nine, and the boss in the big boss's chair. And away I go and told him the story I've just told you, and he's, he's just staring at me. He can't believe it. So in the end, they knew about the 747, but nobody knew about the Lions. So the agreement was we wouldn't tell anybody about the Lions. Um, and uh, we had to fess up to the 747 because Qantas had put in a formal complaint yeah. and uh, wanted us to pay $30,000 in fuel costs, which was a lot of money when you're a lieutenant. And I was trying to pay back my flying loan and 15000 each. So anyway, in the end, we got away with it. The Army uh, sorted it out. And uh, there you go. That's the that is the seven four seven and the lion story. <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> I, I think we're just lucky to be here talking to you today. These runs you and they continue. I know there's a couple more down the track, but my goodness, that's a that's a, a fair rack of uh, experience and stories you've uh, you're clocking up there. I always count. I thank my lucky stars. I'm still around sometimes. Uh, I'm, <laughs> exactly, and it, it puts hair on your chest. Those stories. I can tell you now. You grow up quickly uh, oh, on man. a day like that. You certainly you, you grow up pretty quick as a lieutenant. That's for sure. Well, I'm just thinking CRM courses and things like that. There's uh, this oh, fought, mate, fought oh, that galore. might be a field day for a CRM. Oh god, yeah, that that would be a terrific CRM between aircraft. You know, like uh, might not be in the cockpit, but it's still yeah, yeah. CRM between a senior guy and a junior guy. Oh, yeah. And I, and that whole story is about not being able to say no to somebody because you're under pressure. And it's also a bit of get-home-itis on his behalf where he had a reason to get home. Nearly all my stories actually are a, a Friday story trying to get home and you've been away for a long time and, and everybody talks about get-home-itis. But that is one of my classic get-home-itis stories. No, that's crazy. I hope you enjoyed that. Matt can certainly set up and spin you know, a very good yarn. I can't believe he got away with some of those things. It's amazing. My wife is a long-suffering aviation spouse and doesn't get too excited about all these different things. But I got her trapped as a captive audience on a drive shortly after recording the interview with Matt. And I played her one of the stories that Matt will tell you in the next episode of the Rotary Wing Show. And she had tears of laughter running down her face. So I'll leave that as a teaser for the next episode. You have to keep an eye out for that, and I'll try not to take too long to get that out and get it up and live. If you want to be the first to get notified when the next episode goes up, or indeed for any of the future episodes, two really easy ways to go about it. Subscribe to the show on iTunes or Stitcher with a podcast app on your phone. is probably the easiest. Or you can also get on the email notification list by downloading the list of the top 10 helicopter books as voted by show listeners. 
on the website at rotarywingshow.com. I want to make a special thank you to Peter, Jason, Mick, Michael, and Riddell for your support on Patreon. Uh, guys, your contribution there helps to cover the costs of the, the hosting and the bandwidth fees and goes towards the time it takes to put these episodes together. So I really appreciate it, as do I'm sure everyone else that listens to the episodes as well. If you too, dear listener, would like to be part of the community that keeps the show up and running, then even a dollar an episode makes a difference. So you can do that at rotarywingshow.com forward slash support if that's something that you are interested in being involved in. One new review on iTunes from username Gentle Entry from the US who wrote, love it, I'm a commercial pilot with flight instructor rating. I really enjoy the stories and information in the rotorcraft industry. Keep up the awesome podcast. Hey, thanks heaps. It's uh, really appreciated to take your time to go and leave a review, so thank you. That's it for this episode. I've been your host, Mick Cullen. Catch you in the next one. And it's a lot of fun to look forward to as we get a few more stories out of Matt.